0: All right, it is nine o'clock here, Eastern Standard Time, and this is going to be a Twitter space related to an update and analysis of litigation pertaining to the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee, Lifeway, Southern Seminary, etc. I'll be your host for tonight. My name is William Wolfe, and I'm joined by Joshua Abattoi and John Whitehead to discuss this. And we recognize that this is a very serious matter. And so if you know me, you know that I, you know, have joined Twitter spaces regularly and we had fun with them. Uh, Tonight, that's not the tone or tenor of this. The point is to discuss the situation, to seek truth and understanding, to reason together, as Christian brothers and sisters, and to get a better, uh, a better understanding of what's happening with these issues. John and Josh are both uh, trained lawyers, and as you know, John Whitehead in particular has decades of experience in the Southern Baptist Convention. So that will be the tone and tenor of tonight. Uh, John and Josh, thank you for joining us. Um, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves, starting with Josh. Thanks William, it's good to be here. Um, I am a lawyer, I'm a
1: corporate lawyer, so I'm more often uh, writing up the contracts and not visiting the courtroom, um, but have been a Southern Baptist ever since college. Uh, I went to Union University and, and ever since have been active in Southern Baptist uh, churches and recently following, um, following the abuse scandal in the SBC very closely, uh, especially in comparison to my time in, in Harvard Law School and watching the debates unfold there around uh, the Me Too movement and then the changes that the Obama administration sought to make to Title IX investigations um, in law schools and colleges across the country. So it's an issue I've, I've watched and, and uh, thought hard about for, for years now, but good to be here and to talk with this group.
0: Thank you, Josh. John?
2: Yeah, I'm John Whitehead. I am an attorney just outside uh, Kansas City. Uh, Most of my practice involves churches or religious groups in some kind of litigation. Uh, I've been a Southern Baptist since uh, 1985. Uh, (laughs) I got baptized about the same year the Royals won the World Series. For those of you who are uh, home, keep an eye on the game. Uh, The Royals are not in it this year, so I've got some time on my hands. Uh, I've been a a lawyer since 2004, graduated from Harvard a few years before Josh, Uh, and uh, as part of my practice, I've litigated for Baptist institutions and with Baptist institutions. We've represented religious people uh, at the Supreme Court uh, of the United States and uh, have represented churches and religious groups at uh, kind of all levels between uh, trial court in state court uh, and appeals courts across the country. Uh, and, uh, and so we've had some unusual experience in understanding how courts think about Baptist documents. Uh, and, uh, in terms of serving, uh, Baptist conventions, uh, I was the chairman of the committee on order of business in 2010, uh, and a member of that committee, uh, for Southern Baptist a couple years before that. Uh, so I've, uh, you know, at least, uh, a few years ago, uh, watched the conventions from beginning to end, and kind of helped uh, police the microphones and the boxes. And so, I know what it's like to be on the platform. I know what it's like to be out in the crowd. I think my first convention uh, was also about 1985. Uh, we went to the uh, mega convention in Dallas, uh, and so uh, just have had a long history with Baptists and and Baptist meetings.
0: Thank you, John. And as a way of background for myself, I have been in the Southern Baptist Convention for 12 years now. I'm a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary with a Master's of Divinity and Christian Ministry, and I'm currently working through a THM there as well. So that's my background. Thank you for the introduction, brothers. I'm going to read a verse and then... Uh, make some initial comments. And actually, I'm going to say a brief prayer for us because it's such an important and weighty topic. And so the verse that I want to start us out with tonight is Ecclesiastes 3.17, which says, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. And so as we discuss matters of justice and justice for those who have suffered, and our victims, but also justice for entities and organizations that were not necessarily a party to abuse. It's important that we remember that God knows everything, sees everything perfectly, and there is no deed in this life that will be left unjudged by our good Heavenly Father. And so let's keep that in mind as we start tonight, and then let me say a prayer for us here to help set the tone. As we're recording this space, we want to honor God and seek the truth. Let me pray briefly. Lord, I do pray for this time for my brothers, John and Josh, that you give them wisdom and clarity to discuss pressing legal issues and weighty matters in the life of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I pray that this is a time and a space and a conversation that is useful for all parties listening. We ask that you be glorified and that good to our neighbors be done through it. In your name we pray. Amen. And with that, I just do want to give a note of introduction to everybody listening about the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the United States of America. It is home to 50,000 churches and approximately 14 million members who attend those churches faithfully week in and week out. It has one of the largest, if not the largest, international mission-sending agency in the world, the IMB, which spreads the gospel across the globe and reaches the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. It has a North American Mission Board that works to plant churches on the American continent, and it has six seminaries, and those six seminaries are six of the top ten seminaries in our country. So the Southern Baptist Convention is a massive institution for the advancement of the gospel, for the training of pastors, and the equipping of local church local churches all across America. It's a critical institution for God's work, and we know that He doesn't need it, but he has used it well. And I know that for myself, I hope and pray to see a renewed and revitalized Southern Baptist Convention continue on for generations to come that has a positive impact both on the local church and on the life of our whole country here in the United States. American evangelicalism, for good or for ill, is run through the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the heart of American Christianity in many ways, and what happens here matters greatly both for the our country and for the world. And so it's a very important thing that we're considering today, the future and the durability of the Southern Baptist Convention, and also matters of justice and righteousness and legality as well. And so with that said, what's brought us here tonight is that we have seen that the Southern Baptist Convention, the executive committee, which operates on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention for the 363 days of the year that the Southern Baptist Convention is not, meeting together at its annual meeting. LifeWay, which is our major publishing organization, and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, joined in an amicus brief related to a case in Kentucky. And the joining of that uh, case through the amicus brief has prompted a lot of discussion, online conversation, articles, and then even a statement today from our president, Bart Barber. So I'm going to turn it over to John here first. John, why don't you explain to our listeners what the underlying case is that's uh, that they joined in with the amicus brief to and why this matters to the Southern Baptist convention and the entities involved.
2: Yeah. So uh, I guess to, uh, to start with the case they joined into this is an appeal uh, from a case that was decided last year, June of last year, about the time we were all at the convention in, uh, in New Orleans, the, Kentucky Court of Appeals decided a case, and I think it would have been Jackson versus, uh, or pardon, uh, Killari versus Jackson, K-I-L-L-A-R-Y, uh, versus Jackson. Uh, and the gist of the case is there's a young woman whose father was a policeman and abused her, uh, and he admits it, he confesses to it, he goes to jail, uh, and she acknowledges that the abuse stops when she reaches eighteen years old. Uh, and, uh, about 10 years later, 2018, I think she files a lawsuit, uh, after the abuse stops and I think 2009 and somebody's correct me on these dates if I'm wrong here, but, uh, the, the gist of it is she files about 10 years later, uh, and a key defense raised by, her she sues her grandfather. She sues her father's uh, uh, girlfriend or lover at the time, and she also sues the police department that employed all three of these individuals, the father, the grandfather, and the lover. Uh, And she sues them and says they all had a duty to report abuse, and they all knew about it at the time of the abuse, and they failed to do anything about it, which uh, caused her abuse to continue while she was a minor. Uh, And again, she sued a number of years later, Uh, And Kentucky has passed a uh, statute of limitations expansion that says certain cases that may have been expired in the past could be brought now. It opened up what they call a window of time. Uh, And so uh, part of the question for the Court of Appeals was whether Kalari could continue to bring her case or whether or not the uh, expiration of the statute and kind of revival by the kentucky legislature whether that was permissible under kentucky law and the court of appeals said yes it was her case could go forward and so it was about to send it back down to the lower court and suddenly here comes the southern Baptist convention supporting the appeal by the uh, city and the grandfather and uh, the lover all three of them appealed Uh, and here comes the southern Baptist convention in a case where it's not named and the convention's position is that Kalari should take nothing, that the statute should bar her from recovering, and that in part is is why it's controversial. Why is where is it brought? It's brought in a case that doesn't specifically name the SBC, uh, and the end result of the SBC's position would be that this victim takes nothing. And it's it's an, a, an admitted victim. There's no question about whether or not this person is a victim. Uh, but the convention shows up in this case and says she should take nothing. And so the question then is, why are they interested at all? Why would they do this? And apparently the underlying case for the convention and for the other entities is uh, that this same statute is a key sticking point in the case by Hannah Kate Williams. And so when Kentucky passed a law that linked the statute, uh, uh they they did that in 2017 and then another round in 2021 uh but they also said some claims like that have to be filed under seal and apparently hannah kate williams suit against these four entities of the southern Baptist convention is filed under seal somewhere in kentucky uh many of you will remember hannah kate uh, she kind of broke onto the seed as a sex abuse survivor who's standing next to grant Gaines at the microphone in 2021 uh, as part of the push to investigate the executive committee and force it to a way of attorney-client privilege. And since then, uh, she said she was used as a prop in that incident, uh, and she sued a number of SBC institutions, alleging that her father, I think, was abusive, uh, sexually abusive to her as a child, and that a number of people or institutions involved with the convention either knew or should have known about that abuse, and also, uh, they should have done something, should have done something more. And, uh, and so her claim is that their failure to act uh, prolonged her abuse or caused her abuse, and, and they should be responsible. So it's a similar situation to Clary case. And the SBC says, because this is a key issue in the, our case versus Hannah Williams, uh, we'd like the Kentucky Supreme Court to know this is an important case, and we'd like you to rule the other way in favor of our statute of limitation rights so that's why the sbc is interested that's why partially why it's controversial because of where it was brought Uh, it's it's also controversial because of what it said obviously this argument Uh, and and if you look at the kentucky case law it is kind of an interesting case kentucky does seem to say that once the statute of limitations expires for a party they have a vested right in being free of claims of that nature in the future. Now, not all states have that. The federal government doesn't seem to have that. But Kentucky courts do seem to have said that. Uh, and so it, 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 the fact that on appeal, the Court of Appeals said the case could go forward, the Kentucky Supreme Court suddenly takes the case. They don't have to take the case. That suggests the Kentucky Supreme Court... Uh, There were at least two or three people interested in in hearing that case, thought it might have been decided wrongly down below, and so they brought it up, uh, and that's kind of the the nature of the dispute, whether or not uh, the Kentucky legislature intended to extend the statute or revive the statute for claims against third parties. So you can still, everyone agrees you can sue the person that caused the abuse, the actual abuser. But the question is, can you sue people who knew or should have known and didn't act? Can you sue them? Uh, Did the legislature intend to extend the extension to them? And if they did, can they do that under Kentucky law? And that does seem to be a live case. Does the convention have a legal right or not to be free of this claim after the, the, the statute of limitations expired sometime before 2021? Yeah,
0: thank you for that, John. So the, the language here that is being used is whether or not it can be brought against, you know, non-perpetrators or third party non-offenders such as police, governmental units or religious organizations. And if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly here, the, the question that and the concern that the Southern Baptist Convention and these entities have is not pertaining directly to the Killery case, but it is pertaining to these other cases that have been brought against them, in which they have been named as you know third party, uh, it, pe- you know entities of interest that uh, could potentially be what? Could you explain if this was ruled in favor of Killary and then it pertained to the Hannah Cake case and these Southern Baptist entities? What is at stake
2: there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the 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 issue obviously is. Uh, who can you seek damages from uh, abuse is terrible it's life altering it's, it causes trauma it harms its victims for life uh, and to truly compensate to truly make up for that requires in some cases enormous resources and so if you are abuse, sexually abused by uh, in essence uh, somebody who can't pay for it uh, you can sue them and if they can't pay for it your life you know, there, there there's no chance of making your life better uh, and so I, I think uh, the, on the Killari case, they've obviously sued the government and the government has sufficient resources to pay for some of this. And so that's kind of the background is who has enough money here to pay for the damage that has been caused by traumatic sexual abuse. Uh, and likewise, I understand Hannah Kate's father was was a or is a minister, does not make a lot of money. And so the question is, should these larger institutions with larger resources Should they be the ones uh, that are responsible legally? And if they are responsible legally, should they pay, uh, bear the damages, bear the costs of making it right? And if so, is that significant? Uh, And in most cases, where where there's sexual abuse of a minor child, uh, that's easily uh, a significant amount. It's, It's always a significant amount when a child is sexually abused. Because it makes it takes so many resources uh, to overcome that abuse.
0: Josh, do you want to add anything in yeah. here? Yeah, we,
1: we should get on the table here that the statute of limitations argument is not the Southern Baptist Convention's only defense in some of the cases that it's currently defending. Right. So, so the the other primary argument that it makes is that there's no liability nexus. In other words. Um, you know the the Southern Baptist Convention does not undertake to supervise or exercise control over local congregations. It's a voluntary association, and as a result, um, they 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 are not um, you know morally complicit. They're not sort of uh, causally involved. In, and and in the legal uh, term of art, they they don't owe a duty of care um, to every member of a local. Uh, Church, um, and so so that's that's another argument that the that the Southern B- Baptist Convention has, and there's you know probably a lot of merit to that. That's probably often going to be a winning argument in this litigation. Uh, however, I think crucially uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention's position, if they win uh, the the argument that they're making with their amicus brief. Uh, then they can get uh, probably some of these cases, uh, they, they can get them dismissed at the summary judgment stage without the need to go to a trial um, and do intensive fact finding, which gets expensive. And it also gets um, when people start making discovery requests and digging through an organization's emails, um, it gets painful for an organization. So, you know, um, having, Having sat in the you know the general counsel's seat uh, for just regular secular companies, or, you know, or what have you, I mean, the the playing for the summary judgment is almost the entire ball game when you're trying to run a company or an organization. Getting into real uh, litigation that's going to trial is uh, incredibly um, uh, distracting for an organization and intensive on its resources, and so um, you know, I, I guess I would say that. If we, if we stepped aside from the particular history with the Southern Baptist Convention and the history of this issue, you know, what the lawyers have done and the convention have done with their amicus brief, um, it looks, uh, you know, th- this would be standard operating procedure if we were merely talking about a um, a, a dispute about a contract or what have you.
0: Thank you for yeah. that. For Go ahead, John, did you want to add? Yeah,
2: and, and, I, and I think, you know, in, in terms of what, what do we expect lawyers to do? Lawyers uh, have an ethical duty as lawyers to be zealous advocates for their client. Um, and and depending on how you frame it, uh, some lawyers would say they have a duty to raise every argument or possible defense, uh, or at least if it's a good faith defense. They at least would have the duty to tell the client about the defense, and if they think it's 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 a good one then uh, then they would feel duty-bound to bring it. Uh, the, the other kind of factor that plays into these considerations or to litigation like this is usually uh, there's there could be some kind of insurance company behind the scenes, and once a claim is made, then a third party really is, is in charge of paying the claim, and because of that, The third party also has interest in raising successful defenses. So part of the deal when you buy insurance is if somebody shows up later and makes a claim against you, then you have to let the insurance company put forward successful or at least legitimate defenses. And so by that point, uh, if the client says, you know, I don't want to raise this defense, I'd rather plead guilty to this defense, the insurance company says, well, that's fine, but there's no money here for your victim. You can, you can raise or waive whatever defenses you want, but it comes out of your pocket. And so reading between the lines, lawyers don't type, like to talk about insurance because they don't want juries to to rule based on insurance or to signal that there's uh, big pockets behind them. But just reading between the lines, my guess is now at, at this point, the convention entities are, are kind of uh, in a relationship with insurance companies and if the convention entities want the insurance companies to pay Hannah Kate's claim, if it comes to that down the down the road, they're going to have to let the insurance company offer legitimate defenses and get rulings on those. Because if the insurance company says, well, look, if we could have claimed statute of limitations, get rid of this, why should I pay X hundred thousand dollars or million dollars down the road? We had a deal where you were going to let me defend you. And if you don't want me to defend you, you also don't get my money to pay your victim. And so that's the the kind of dance that uh, we probably see going on behind the scenes. Entity heads that want their insurance company to pay out, they've paid for premiums. uh, And if there's there's a real risk of paying out here, they don't want to do something that flushes that insurance down the toilet.
0: That's very helpful. Thank you to you both. I want to sort of bring in some of the uh, some of the comments and the counterclaims to what you're laying out here. And then this will give you an opportunity to speak to really the, the existential question of the existence of the Southern Baptist convention as an organization and all the various entities that are a part of it, because the, the counterpoints to what you have just spelled out would be along the lines of, well, there's no settlement too big uh, that you know, should be paid out in the pursuit of justice You know, there's no legal liability or or claims of legal protections that shouldn't be waived as we pursue justice. There's no concern that should be given for how, you know, corporate insurance companies operate or your contractual obligations or business dealings with them. Because what we have on our hands right now are, you know, cases of uh, real cases of horrific abuse that have been suffered by individuals and and justice needs to be done no matter the cost no matter what it looks like so john or josh how would you respond to those claims and particularly about the the question of liability with the southern baptist convention and as we think of biblical standards of justice in regards to who is responsible who is the perpetrator who is who is not responsible who are not the perpetrators because you know we see these claims circulate you know that the southern baptist convention is covering for abusers, you know, keeping lists you know, of abusers and, you know, just, they're just trying to cover their wallets and cover their backs with this. What would you guys say to that?
2: Yeah. William, can I, can I detour a little bit? And and can I run down kind of the history of how the brief came to be? And that will kind of conclude the get everybody on the same page, uh, educational segment. And then we can talk about kind of the theory about uh, what's going on and especially about theories of justice, because I, I do think uh, we do have some leaders that are stuck in, in essence, a suicide loop uh, about how to think about justice. But uh, real quick, let me run down how kind of the timeline of what it took to get this brief on file, because I think lots of people are confused uh, about that. Um, so Killary, uh, Killary wins her case in 2022, June 2022. On 7-26, July twenty-six. There's a motion of the Kentucky Supreme Court uh, by the county or or by the city uh, and the defendants. And they say, Kentucky Supreme Court, please take this case. The Kentucky Supreme Court has discretionary review like the U.S. Supreme Court, and they don't have to take it if it's not important. So the very fact that they would take it would be a sign that somebody thinks the court uh, below got it wrong. Uh, We know from today's statement that around this time, maybe uh, August 8 or 9, or pardon, 9 or 10, Bart Barber gets an email from what he says is the SBC's legal team asking him as president to approve the brief for the SBC. And that would match up uh, because there's a 15-day deadline. And about 15 days later, on August 10, the Kentucky Supreme Court says we get a brief. Somebody has tendered a motion to file an amicus brief. And an amicus brief means it's a friend of the court, it's a non-party, they want to file some brief to raise some issue they think the court might not otherwise get. Uh, and and the SBC and these other entities filed early. In fact, the court said uh, the, the initial appeal asked for an extension of the page limit, so frankly, we haven't granted that. There's nothing on appeal, and, and your brief isn't due until 15 days after that. And uh, on August 24, the Kentucky Supreme Court says, OK, now that your appeal is on file. Uh, and then the the, the SBC's brief uh, shortly after that, 829, gets filed. Uh, the plaintiff's attorney filed a response about the same time, presumably saying, court, you shouldn't listen to this amicus brief. Uh, and on September 28, the court actually denies the brief, they say, on you know, in terms of. Deciding whether or not to take this case, outside parties shouldn't tell us much about that. We don't want to hear your brief. But then the court finally, in December two thousand or December seven, the Supreme Court says, "Okay, we are going to listen to the case, but we're going to decide it just on the briefs, without oral argument." And then in March, after the briefing is done, then it's time for Amicus briefs to be filed, and and the lawyer that files it is Edmund Sauer. Edmund Sauer. Is On the on the docket, he's a lawyer for Lifeway, but his firm is the Bradley Firm, and we know Bradley is the law firm also for the SBC Executive Committee, uh, and sometimes the SBC itself. It's led the defense of the SBC Executive Committee in Texas against the Presto litigation. So to say it's Lifeway's lawyer, it's also the SBC Executive Committee's lawyer, it's all the same firm and they can't, uh, they can't do something for one of those clients that prejudices the other client. So uh, I know some folks said, well, it was Lifeway's lawyer that started it. Well, probably well, he is assigned to Lifeway on this case, but it's everybody's lawyer except Southern Seminaries. Uh, the, one firm uh, has a legal duty to all three of the uh, the SBC entities. So on February 23, uh, Edmund Sauer comes back. He files the brief. And and just look at the signature lines. It looks like Sauer is the moving lawyer. It was his idea, probably. He's the one. He, in fact, signs for all the other lawyers. So all the other lawyers for all three entities just say, yeah, go ahead and sign for us. So all the signatures say X, Y, Z by Edmund Sauer. He's the one that files it. He's an appellate expert in uh, Bradley's Nashville office. Uh, And then on April five the Supreme court finally grants the motion to leave. So that's the brief gets sent in in February and the Kentucky Supreme court thinks about it and finally takes the brief in April. So that's why it's file stamped April uh, on some of the motions you see. So it lists four entities, the SBC lifeway and the SBC uh, executive committee. It lists four lawyers lifeways, Bradley's firm, each of the other entities technically have another firm that's there for them probably the firms that have a deal with the insurance company and they've got a specific rate and that's what the insurance company is willing to pay as they control the defense. Uh, the SBTS, for example, their lawyer represents major distilleries and Muhammad Ali, probably not a lawyer they've worked with a lot. But the EC's attorney, John Shellard, has worked for Sunrise Children's Home in Kentucky. So he he may have been a lawyer they'd had relationships with But probably these other firms uh, are not firms that know a lot about the SBC uh, or their clients particularly. They know the law in this area. Uh, And frankly, they're going to say, look, Bradley, the firm for Lifeway here, has spent millions of dollars looking over all the secrets of the Southern Baptist Convention in terms of attorney-client privilege. We're not going to spend millions of dollars catching up to where Bradley is. So if Bradley tells us that's what's happened, we're going to take their word for it. And if Bradley says they want to file this brief, we're going to take their word for it that this is a good thing to file. Uh, So it gets filed on April 5, 2023, and then on August 25, again, it was headed for resolution without the briefs. And the court says, whoa, whoa, we're looking at the file. We're going to go ahead and have an oral argument here. Uh, Everyone, this appears to be a bigger case than we realized. And so let's do here from the parties and they set it for October 19th, uh, and then the Louisville newspaper reported on it last week, and that really is where everyone begins to understand, oh, there's a Southern Baptist brief in this case that nobody else was tracking, uh, and so the hearing was held on the 19th, and it's now up online. I, I listened to it this afternoon. Uh, not all the justices uh, participated in the questioning, so it's hard to to give a nose count. Uh, I'd count two for or two against, but but three are pretty unclear and so that's kind of the lay of the land what is how did we get here who started it from all appearances this was probably an idea in the bradley law firm and then they would go to the partner uh uh, gene Besson down in texas and say i've got this idea and and first you decide amongst the lawyers and then you go to the clients and say hey we've got this idea we think it's important do we all agree that this is a legal right we need to assert uh, and then we, we hear from Bart Barber today that uh, maybe uh, the same day, the, the day they apparently thought they needed to file, he gets a finalized brief to look at and approve on behalf of the convention uh, and query whether or not he has that right or should have that right on behalf of the convention. The president is a moderator, uh, not really a real officer in Southern Davis polity, but we seem to have turned the, the president into an officer. Uh, and given the more rights than maybe the governing documents uh, uh, might require. And, and so he says he signed off on that and based on his approval, the Southern Baptist Convention, not an entity, not the seminary, not the executive committee, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, enters its appearance and uh, supports this brief. So uh, th- there's that. And uh,
0: John, let me pause you right there for a second, just help try to drive for some clarification for our listeners. So had President Barber not you know, signed off on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention, the executive committee, as represented by its attorneys, would still have signed this and also Lifeway and uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, correct?
2: Maybe. They each would have had the right to have done that, uh, but— there is also a little bit of clumpiness in the convention. Uh, that if somebody holds up, maybe they would all hold up for each other, uh, or whether they would go ahead. It is true. This looks like uh, something that came as a fait accompli. We've all agreed this should be done. Uh, so let's go forward. And probably somebody would have. Uh, but but it's kind of hindsight's twenty twenty. Whether or not any particular one would have gone forward.
1: John, I want to park on this question of the SBC signing the brief um, I, I you know I, I think the basic framework right is that the the SBC properly existing or properly speaking exists uh, during the time when it meets each year and then in the interim uh, you have the executive committee which is essentially delegated authority to um, carry out the instructions that are given by the convention but what what does it is there precedent in the last you know ten or twenty years for the Southern Baptist Convention itself to sign on to litigation uh, filings in in some interim interim period and uh, you know or or is this or is this a bit of an innovation?
2: Yeah, no. So at least the lawyers for the convention wouldn't have let that happen because the goal was there is a little bit of seminary doggerel that that seminary professors tell pastors. It's not true, but we all act like it is, that the Southern Baptist Convention only exists two days a year. And that kind of developed to help the landmarkists get over joining the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1850s. Uh, Well, it only exists two days a year. How bad could it be? It's, It's true the Southern Baptist Convention meets two days a year. And the old rule would have been it only does anything two days a year for the most part. But the Southern Debs Convention is a Georgia corporation chartered by the Georgia legislature in 1845. So it is a legal thing 365 days a year. It doesn't, it, it did not do anything on the other 363 days a year. The, the documents say, uh, for everything we've not given to other entities, the executive committee has ad interim authority. And so, uh, the lawyers trying to respect those differences would have tried to make sure the Southern Baptist Convention Corporation doesn't do anything that could be held liable during those other 363 days a year. They didn't want the top corporation to ever be responsible for anything significant. If you slipped and fell at an annual meeting, uh, you made the claim, and, and in fact, you'd find out, no, actually the executive committee rented this space. They were the ones that invited you. So the goal was, for liability protection purposes, each entity did its own thing. And the Southern Baptist Convention proper did almost nothing. Now, you could get sued. It did get sued a couple of times back in the 80s during the conservative resurgence. The moderates got angry about how Charles Stanley handled things. And they'd sue Charles Stanley and they'd sue the convention. But the convention existed during the off time. Part of the the hash that has been made in recent years is everyone got so mad at the executive committee, which used to do be the thing that actually did things, they said we're not gonna do things at the executive committee anymore. Now we're gonna do things at the top level. And so for the last couple of years, the Southern Baptist Convention has been doing all kinds of stuff all year long. It's got committees, it's got officers, it's got meetings, it's got websites. It's admitting, making apologies. It's doing tours. The Southern Baptist Convention Corporation now has suddenly started doing all kinds of high liability stuff because we said we don't trust the lawyers for the executive committee. We don't care what their theory was. We're going to start doing it at the SBC level. And what that means for liability purposes is it used to be that if you wanted to hold everybody responsible as one fell swoop, you know, kind of one big pile of money, you'd have to say well i you know the executive committee did wrong and the uh, you know say one of the seminaries did wrong but i'd have to go up to the sbc pierce the veil up to the sbc and then pierce the veil back down to the to the entities to to make the thing one big pile of money and then you know in theory you could get the whole cooperative program for your judgment and so the lawyers designed things to to try to say no we're not going to conduct ourselves in a way that you could just pierce one level and get the whole cooperative program. But what has happened in the last couple of years, the hash we have made of our legal structure and our polity uh, is that now you only have to pierce one level. You just have to come back from the convention itself, which has been doing all kinds of things, back down to the stream of money. Uh, And so we we have really made a hash of the liability protections that were observed for 50 or 100 years by lawyers that cared about the convention uh we just kind of chucked those last few years and started doing lots of stuff at the sbc level which if things go poorly will make it uh uh, you know uh much easier to kind of wind up the convention into one big ball of wax john that that was
0: very useful but would you be able to describe in any greater detail the hash that has been made and that phrase you use there, you know, piercing the veil to get to, you know, the entire cooperative program and all of the, you know, wonderful gospel oriented ministries and missions that are driven through the cooperative program that may now be on the line. Uh, What happened that, what has happened that has led us to this point, if you could give any more details.
2: Well, I, I mean, I guess broadly, uh, you know, we, we've had two generations of elite failure, it seems to me, in the SBC. We had the end of the conservative resurgence, uh, and and from where I sit, some of that got pretty gross and long in the tooth at the end of their tenure. Uh, you know, there were stories about uh, stained glass windows and Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and, and luxury vacations, and, and so that uh, ended up Uh, at the end being uh, kind of a failure of governance. And they were pushed out then, though, in the abuse scandal that was kind of generated in 2020 and 2021, uh, involving Dr. Moore and Adam Greenway and and some others that were involved. And, And in one sense, that's a new generation of leaders. But in another sense, it's the tail end of the conservative resurgence failure. It's the same leadership philosophy of kind of behind-the-scenes, closed-door leadership, but they think, well, we, we put in better people, and now we've got better people, and so that'll solve the problem. And it probably won't solve the problem. One of my theses about SBC leadership is it the old backdoor system can't survive the internet. When all the eyes are on it, uh, we need more transparency to build trust. It does not build trust to go in the back room. So running the convention the same way with new people will not generate different results, but that's what we're going to try. We pushed out one group because we didn't like how they were going to handle abuse. And the group that came in made promises to do something different, or at least said they would do something different, but I don't think they either knew what they were talking about or didn't expect to fulfill them. And so as a result, Uh, You know, you'll hear people say, well, if I'd march into court, I'd tell the lawyers what to do. I would have told those lawyers, you know, stuff it. And this is what religion requires. And and that's not true. You're 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 not going to do that. These are the kind of people that say, I imagine I could talk my way out of with the cops when they come to my door. And we call those people inmates. Uh, It is not you do not understand the legal system or the forces you're dealing with. If you say, in the middle of a lawsuit where I've actually got real resources on the line, I'm going to tell my lawyer to stuff it, and he does what I tell him to do, and he can make the law say what I want it to say, that's wrong. Uh, lawyers can be skilled advocates, but at least in, at Harvard, while I was there, you, we used to say a good lawyer uh, might be able to change 20% of the outcomes, but 80% of the outcome is locked in. Uh, There are facts, and sometimes there are disputes about those, but most of them we agree on. And there's law, and you can't get laws to mean just anything you want. Now, there are arguments, and we focus on the arguments, but kind of like uh, biblical texts, if if you say, I can get the preacher to say whatever I need him to say, that's not a good preacher. And likewise, if you're hiring the lawyer that just tells you what you want to hear, you've not hired a good lawyer. You've hired a mercenary. And so, if you've not, if you can't trust, if you, if you don't have lawyers that you trust to tell you the truth about how something's going to go, and you think, well, it's my moral duty to come in and tell the lawyer how it's going to end up, uh, it's not going to work. And so, the people that are telling you will march into court, will make a difference, will tell the lawyers where to sit and where to stand, and what the Bible says to do. They they apparently never expected to be in the situation where the lawyers come to them and say, "Sign this amicus brief." And so now that they're in power, the people who made big promises, who adopted social justice mantras, they oversold the harms, they made too many promises, they ex- they've accepted too much responsibility for the convention at the convention level, and now they're trying to dig out. Uh, and so we've had two successive generations of leaders that are getting this into hot water, and that's the problem. So, so how did we get there? You alluded to it, William the leaders have adopted uh, at least they've come into power by echoing what amount to feminist and social justice slogans about abuse. And and let me say, you know, I suppose this is the ritual denunciation, but I, I, I do realize there is real abuse and there are gross abuses of authority by ministers. In fact, Uh, it's now so old. The reason I got on the internet blogging, johnthebaptist.com was our local minister and his son, uh, who was on staff in my childhood church, abused a young woman, fathered a child with her, tried to use the church money to make it go away. uh, And it, it racked my childhood church. We went to the mat to try to do the right thing for that young lady. So none of this precludes doing the right thing for abused women are victims of ministerial abuse. And that's real and needs to be handled. Uh, and I'm all for raising the standards of ministers where ministers have, have fallen below this requirement. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> uh, some people would say I don't forgive enough, uh, but I, I'm all for maintaining a high standard of ministers. But if you adopt suicidal leftist definitions of abuse and justice, then you're going to get trapped in a spiral where you can't get out. It's an acid that eats through all the institutions you care about. Uh, So ideas like believe all women all the time, or ideas like trauma is more truthful than the Bible, or being trauma-informed. If you look up, what does it mean to be trauma-informed? Trauma-informed is a way for doctors to talk to patients so they don't feel blamed, and so they can get the medical care they need, But at some point, in some situations, you have to talk about responsibility and blame. And so to say that the Bible never uses conviction or assigns blame, that's not the Bible. And so if your life is patterned around saying that things can't be, that it's wrong to assign blame, there are times in which assigning blame is not helpful. And it's important to get people the help they need. But there are other times in which the situation does require uh, talking about judgment. And, and if you say, well, trauma is more real than the Bible or trauma is a truth that's more understandable than the Bible or behind the Bible, then you're going to go off limits or you're going to go off course. Uh, Victims are always right. So not that it's just mostly right, but it's immoral to ever deny a victim. Uh, And so when that person asks for damages, you, you end up in the in the prison of saying, well, it's wrong to ever deny them what they've asked for. And uh, and if they want you to put a name in a database, you start thinking it's wrong to refuse them. And and so all of those are what I would call concepts of acidic justice. Uh, our, our friend Neil Shindvey has talked about how uh, it's in critical race theory. It's Once you latch on to uh, oppressed oppressor kind of eats through everything. And and similarly, if your sole definition of justice is reparation and equality, that's not enough to make a moral decision. Uh, Jonathan Haidt had a book, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago called The Righteous Mind. And Haidt said liberals are people that only feel two kinds of morality. They, they primarily sense equality and care. And if your only concern is equality and care, Haight said it, it's conservatives that feel six kinds of morality. They're trying to balance more. Conservatives are trying to, to balance liberty and loyalty and authority and sanctity and us. So not just what's fair, how do I make it up, but how do I make a decision that doesn't destroy the rest of us? How do I make a decision for this person that gets this person what they need without blowing up the whole process? Well, if, if you're the kind of person that adopts the acidic slogan, people are more important than institutions. At, at some level, as a, as a conservative, I can say it's right that human life is more important than corporate corporations. But on the other hand, my marriage is an institution. And so to say, that person is more important than my marriage, well, you know, my, my wife would say, you know, it's not more important than some institutions. <laughs> uh, and so at, at some level, you have to balance more than getting this, does this person deserve more? You, are, you have to be balancing, can I take from theater to give to Paul? And is that the right thing to do? And so it's people without skin in the game who want to use SBC offering plate money to pay off their sins, that's an easy sell, right? I, I will spend any amount of offering plate money to make you feel better. That's really not, an, that's not integrity. That's easy to say. That's not really a person with skin in the game. We need somebody to, to be thinking about what is the trade-off. Uh, if you're the kind of person who's out of power and says, I will spend any amount of Baptist offering plate money to make you feel better, uh, they have to put a price on it. What, wh- what do you really mean? How many missionaries should come home? How many seminaries should close? How many church planters should we stop this year in order to, what funds should we use? Because we have limited resources as Southern Baptists. How much of the offering plate money should go there? And if your slogan is, well, it doesn't matter, whatever it takes, those tend to be people who aren't willing to spend their own money. There there was kind of a, uh, you know, early on in in this uh, history, there was a notable figure that said, at any price, people are more important than institutions. And then one of the victims asked them to do some counseling during Wednesday evenings. And their wife decided, no, some people are more important, some institutions are more important than uh, people. And I'm not going to let you counsel this individual on Wednesday nights at the expense of our family and church and ministry. So, the, the pie-in-the-sky slogan, people are more important than institutions. On the one hand, that's right. Human life is more important than corporate niceties. But in terms of assigning responsibility and blame and resources, somebody has to think about what it means, what What do Baptists want us to do? And if if we want to put that up to Baptists, that's fine. But don't make promises that you can do it and have a full missions program um, and not be able to carry that out. So, the the way we've got here, I think, is uh, uh, social justice slogans that don't balance the responsibility to think about the whole. Uh, you know, the the SBC just cannot pay for all of the abuse that has ever happened in all of its in all the churches. It wasn't set up to do that. It wasn't set up to know about it. Um, and uh, it, it, certainly, legally, there's a big question: is whether it is responsible. But if we go into a, a Southern Baptist Convention meeting and promise that we're going to pay for abuse no matter the cost, you need to understand that that can be a legally binding promise, uh, and it is almost certainly a promise that exceeds what Baptists have given to Baptist ministry. Uh, if if I run the numbers. Uh, based on CDC estimates uh, and then you multiply that there's $9 billion a year in damage due to abuse uh, and there's 5.3% of America is in the SBC uh, and then you account account for inflation in the last few years you'd get a number like $700 million a year so for every year to pay off all the abuse uh, weight to, to just kind of pay all that off it would be three or four years of no cooperative program for any entity. And that's the kind of promises people are making on the internet. And so we have to spend all of our money, do whatever it takes to get back uh, into good graces. Uh, And at some point we have to sit down and, and realize the promises we make, we will be held to. They are not ministerially speaking promises. There are promises that will be read back to courts and juries. And if you don't intend to do it, then stop saying that you will. I, I don't think Baptists intend to promise we'll stop cooperative ministry for three or four years just to pay off one year of our pro rata uh, abuse debt in America. We weren't res- the, the Southern Baptist Convention itself was never responsible. But if you get Baptists in a room and tell them, we need to accept responsibility for all the abuse that happened in our local churches, and they vote to do it, then you don't have to ask whether the law holds you responsible. You've admitted it. And the question just becomes, can you afford to pay the debt you've just taken on? And the answer is no. And so that's the real concern uh, about the way the convention is headed and the direction of the current leadership.
0: Thank you for that, John. That was worst obviously, everybody's time here tonight. And I think you, you continually bring up, you know, the, there's the question of not only would we agree to, to pay for all of these things, but this gets at fundamentally the question of who are we as a Southern Baptist convention? Are we a cooperation of 50,000 churches that have a shared, you know, theological statement and doctrine of faith and under those auspices as independent, autonomous, local church bodies, we cooperate, we pool funds for the sake of missions and church planting and seminary education, or were we to take a vote like you just, you know, you know, detailed, are we all of a sudden one entire entity and anything that happens at one local autonomous church or formerly autonomous church is now the responsibility Of Every single other church in this cooperative body. And that's not a vote that Southern Baptists, I believe, understand themselves to have taken thus far. However, we have begun to take votes and we've had entities take action, executive committee take actions that lead us down that road. And one of those in particular is the waiving of attorney client privilege at the executive committee. And so uh, if you want to speak to that briefly, how that's played into this, and then I know Josh has some comments as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I'd be interested in hearing probably Josh has more experience with how that would impact the ability of a corporation to keep on doing work. Um, I guess from the outside perspective, what I would say is by, by the time you have lost enough trust in the organization and its lawyers and its ability to do the right thing, most people don't realize that that was in effect a a vote to seriously harm the ability of the convention to keep functioning. Uh, it sounds nice. We're going to throw open the doors uh, and and look at all the documents, and, and we did. Uh, but then you know, at least the testimony is really convoluted. Everyone seems to believe that the convention has accepted responsibility for covering up decades of abuse. If you look at what's been testified to, Bart Barber says uh, what was mishandled was the failure to call back Krista Brown, one of the abuse victim uh, advocates uh, and the handling of the Jen Lyle case. But that's it. tardy phone calls and Jen Lyle and that's it. And, and so we've spent 10 or $15 million to discover that. Uh, and the question is, what what else is there to be done? Are we responsible for more than that? And lots of people seem to think the convention has admitted more than that. Uh, and uh, it, once that becomes kind of public knowledge, it, no matter what you tell the jury, no matter what facts you put in front of the public, if they've all heard somewhere else, the Cilabes Convention uh, covers up lots of abuse. It will be hard to defeat that claim. But uh, Josh, you might have some thoughts about what attorney-client privilege does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it. You said it. It destroys an organization's ability to even conduct itself, and that's true in some very meaningful ways. I, I mean, just stepping back, and the waiving attorney-client privilege is sort of like saying the premise that you have to have in order to, for that move to make sense is essentially that every claim that's ever brought against your organization is brought by someone with a pure motive and you're complicit in the claim that they brought. And, you know, therefore it would be wrong for you to be able to have, you know, sort of private, um, private correspondence between yourself and your lawyers to, uh, to defend yourself against those claims. I mean, that's really, if you draw the logic out to its conclusion, that's what it is. And, you know, this ties into the broader, um, point that, that I think really needs to be made just fundamentally justice requires, um, justice requires for the individual, um, you know, recompense, right. I mean, whether they've, if they've been wronged in a criminal way, a criminal punishment for the person who, who committed a crime against them. And if they've been wronged by somebody's negligence, if they have a civil claim against somebody and that person was complicit, it requires, um, you know, compensation from that individual as well. But but a key component of justice is that you obtain the justice from somebody who was complicit. It's not just, it's not just if you've been harmed to go seek money from just anyone on the street or to seek money from an organization. You have to be getting, holding the right person accountable. This is, this is such a basic point, um, but it's been lost. And what's happened over the last 10 years and in a lot of the abuse litigation and this is not just the SBC but this is broader changes in the law across the country is um, you know w- the Western legal tradition coming out of biblical conceptions of justice and then running through the English common law developed very thick processes for making sure that you ran a fair trial um, that both you know gave the alleged victim an opportunity to have their day in court and to make their case and then it also made sure that you adequately protected defendants from uh, false accusations or you know misremembered accusations and that sort of thing and you know we've had this very developed reasoned time-tested tradition evolve and that includes a lot of things like statutes of limitations or it also includes evidentiary standards. Um, you know, will you allow, if there's a case that is um, essentially a he said, she said, will that be allowed to get to a jury? For most of, for most of the history of Western civilization, the answer to that question is no, because we tilted, um, based on biblical conceptions of justice and requirements around witnesses, and then developed through the English common law, we actually tilted the process to favor defendants. Um, We, you know, better, better, um, you know, better 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man be convicted. Uh, That was, that's been the, um, the balance of our, of our due process system. And you really saw, you started to see frontal assaults on this uh, during the Obama administration. Um, It was happening at a state level under a lot of the criminal law. And then it was also happening. Um, in various parts of the federal government and the administration, so for example, um, the Department of Education uh, started to promulgate policies under Title IX uh, that significantly uh, pared back the due process that students would receive if students were accused of sexual assault, and so you know this this kind of famously resulted in a lot of controversy. Um, but but these these offices at universities would. Um, essentially kick students out. And, you know, oftentimes that was made public as well. So this was a, this would be a devastating event in a student's life. And they would do so through a Title IX process in which the students, um, had no right to cross-examination. Sometimes they had no rights to even have attorney representation in the room with them. Um, oftentimes they would not have a right to see the evidence that the claiming party, uh, had to substantiate their claim against the student, and the standard was preponderance of the evidence, like a civil claim. So, if this university administer administrator determined uh, that it was more likely than not that you were guilty, um, you were you were booted out of your school. And um, you know this was a this was a huge controversy back when I was attending law school. And actually, um, you know, well, Harvard Law is not famous for its uh, legal, uh, legal prowess, uh, on the conservative end of the spectrum, there, there were actually a lot of professors, including a lot of prominent lefties that signed a massive letter opposing the Obama administration's policies on title IX. Um, and so, you know, when, when you start to see, um, in, in the SBC, we, we have to see and understand that similar arguments and tactics have been used. Um, we've been talking about the statute of limitations and you know we can we can debate about the appropriate length of statutes of limitations and that sort of thing, but kind of fundamentally, it's not wrong for an organization or individual to to um, you know particularly in a civil matter to avail themselves of a statute of limitations. There's lots of uh, reasons that have been discovered over time for why statutes of limitations are conducive to the justice process. Um, the the chief reason is that. Uh, you know, when you've been wronged in the last year or two, evidence is often good. Memories are still sharp. Um, there's there's more witnesses that are still alive. The corroborating evidence is still there. Um, as the as the as time wears on, the evidence gets tougher. It's likely to degrade. Um, memories are likely to change significantly over time. Um, and this has all been proven. And this is why over time. Um, you know, this, this is one of the chief reasons why the this statute of limitations has been almost a universal aspect of law in Greece, in Rome, through uh, Christendom, common law, England, and America. Um, so so those have always existed. But then also in the SBC, we've seen pressure on the process that somebody gets if they're accused. and And we've seen this especially around uh, the calls for the SBC to create a database of individuals who've been credibly accused of sexual assault. Now that list is going to include people who have a public who have a conviction. Uh, that's that's straightforward enough. Uh, but then, but then, um, the, the, there's also been calls to create, um, you know, a list of people who've been uh, credibly accused by preponderance of the evidence in the determination of a third, uh, a third party adjudicator. So someone neutral, not crucially, not a federal court. And, and there's a massive, John, you and I have written about this before, but um, there's all sorts of processes that you don't have uh, when you're in a process that's being run by a private third party um, adjudicator as opposed to a court. Um, you may or may not be able to uh, make discovery requests. If you want to see the evidence that the other side claims they have against you, you may not be able to do uh, depositions. Well, you certainly can't do depositions under oath. No, none of the information being provided is is under oath, which means uh, the accusing party doesn't really have a downside if they're bringing um, if they're bringing a frivolous claim, and and all of that significantly tips the scales in the f- in favor of the accusers. And it's all it's all sort of part and parcel with tying it back to to what you something you said earlier. But but these are all sort of small legal fronts in the much bigger um leftist feminist attack uh on on our western legal tradition and so yeah i mean that that's 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 where we've gotten and i have to say like on the whole from watching the sbc's reaction over the last three years since this issue's been live um the sbc has not has not had a lot of fight um you know very early on it could have said you know god hates abuse um you know, we want to learn how we can better resource local churches to protect people from abuse. Um, they, they could have said something like that, you know, and without without taking blame, because they, they really don't. They don't. Generally speaking, uh, perhaps there's one or two cases where they mishandled information that they received. But generally speaking, the SBC has not undertaken and, and do, is not complicit in abuse or cover ups. And um, and and so so the the you know, this flare up over the amicus brief um, is is partly interesting because in a lot of ways, this is the this is the first sort of sign of a fight out of the SBC, the the willingness of the SBC to defend itself from accusations that I've seen since the SBC abuse scandal really got going in 2020, 2021 Um, and I would say that um, it's sort of odd terrain to have picked. Um, you know, typically, if you're going to be, um, if you're going to be defending yourself, uh, you have a unified strategy from the start with your public messaging, uh, with um, you know, kind of a consistent message across a lot of domains. And so, so we're kind of at a weird point where the SBC didn't defend itself at the really obvious junctures where it really should have defended itself, and now we come to. You know a question that's that's a lot more technical but to the layperson it looks like the sbc is relying on legal tricks to get away from what you know something that it obviously should be held accountable for that's how the public reads it in part because the sbc up until now has the leadership has generally not been able to morally defend itself even though i think that case is there and is probably the right case
0: thank you josh and John, I, I want to. We'll we'll go here for a couple more minutes, and then we'll bring up some other people who have uh, who are in the audience and have uh, comments and important perspectives. But to try to make this, you know, practical and specific to the SBC and the sort of the allegations at hand, you know, what again, what would your response be to these allegations that you know the SBC is you know covering up abuse and then it's doing harm? two survivors. So let's take that. And then also, you know, I would like to hear either one of yours engagement with the statement from uh, President Barber. And then also we saw the ERLC release a statement today as well with an interesting, uh, some interesting verbiage in it related to how the SBC should be operating in light of these. And then speak again briefly, we'll try to take this, keep this brief here to sort of Nature of leadership because, as Josh, as you were saying, the SBC is standing up for itself on on legal grounds here, and yet at the same time, we saw a proliferation of statements from executive committee members essentially denouncing this, saying they had no knowledge of it. And then we have Barber's admission of his signing off on it with a sort of big mea culpa along the way. So, if you guys could. Take those uh, and try to keep it somewhat brief, and then we'll move into some other comments. Here. Thank you.
2: <laughs> that's, that's a lot of waterfront to cover, William. <laughs> uh, I have confidence I, in both of you. <laughs> I, I guess to take the first thing I heard uh, to talk about this particular case, um, uh, You know, I I don't want to say the SBC could never be responsible for abuse. Obviously, if somebody comes to an SBC official uh, and and tells them about abuse and they do nothing, that's a very different question than did some local church know that its uh, minister had done wrong. And once they find it out, are they supposed to call the convention? And if so, what's the convention supposed to do? Is it supposed to do anything We've, we've never been set up to do that. We spend money together on causes that we all join together with. We have a doctrinal confession that we expect you to follow, but we have never uh, been set up to rat each other out or to, to call up the chain or to impose some kind of Nashville standard on local church reporting. We've always said, call the police, call the cops, follow your local law, get your own lawyer, do the right thing but that's doing the right thing has never involved calling Nashville before. Maybe we want to make it that way. I've argued we could, we could impose a database requirement. If the majority of Baptists wanted to do that, it's probably costly. It's probably lots of litigation. Some of you will have biblical concerns about it, but I at least legally acknowledge messengers could get in a room and decide to do the thing. And, uh, and that would be a new thing. But in terms of the past, I don't think the SBC would have been responsible for the past unless you can get leaders guilted into confessing we were responsible for the past. And if they say we were responsible for the past, then they're responsible for the past. All the the cooperative program becomes on the hook for the past. Uh, And we have come precious close to saying that. So I I guess in, in terms of what's to fix, Baptist leaders need to get over the idea that justice is done in Baptist business meetings. Nobody, the Founding Fathers, did not uh, fight for a, you know, a constitutional right to be found guilty or not guilty in a Baptist business meeting. Uh, it was is a process by the courts. If I were accused of a wrong today, I can tell you I'd rather have it decided by trial with the process uh, of state and federal courts. Uh, Even even the courts, uh, you can imagine people on this call don't like Uh, the courtrooms they would not like. I would rather be tried there than in a mob of 15,000 Baptists who got a letter two two days ago that said, I run a rape factory down in Nashville. That is not justice. (laughs) Uh, And so when when 15,000 people show up angry about the angry letter they received that accuses you of doing terrible things... uh, we probably should have developed some more reasonable process. But instead we said, no, executive committee, debase yourself. And so self-debasement becomes the standard. How debasing are you? Have you put up any resistance at all? And if you resist, then you're obviously guilty. That's terribly unjust. And we should stop telling ourselves that it's a just process. It would be far better for Baptists to agree, we're going to use the courts, to decide what happened in these in these instances and we're not going again the, the convention should not allege uh defenses to which it's not entitled but if it has legitimate legal defenses it's going to allege those i think it's it, it has to do that in some cases or or it will Uh, At least it's the best thing to let them do that and recognize that's going to be an awkward process. It's really hard to be the friend of the victim and also responsible to the victim. That's not a situation in which there's a lot of winners. Uh, It will take some awkward process to get through and let the courts decide what is the convention responsible for. Uh, But apologizing and, and, uh, taking on the last 50 or 100 years' worth of abuse in local churches, backwards-looking instead of forwards-looking, that's really a dangerous place to be. And as Josh and I wrote uh, last couple of years, I, I am fine with Baptists deciding to do what they want to do going forward. I feel very scared about people bringing on liabilities from the past and Baptists losing their ability to go forward. Uh, And so do not let people promise that they'll take you in a back room and reach a resolution and then come back out. We need the, the SBC system at this point needs radical transparency, not new people. It needs radical transparency so we all know exactly what decisions we're making and who's making them and whether we feel good about them or not or whether it's the majority or not. But we have so little trust and we have so little leadership capital right now, and we're in such a precarious position, the idea that we could form a blue ribbon committee and they'll get in the room and come up with some language and make us all happy, it's not going to happen. We're in a dangerous spot and we need leaders who are willing to be transparent about the situation in front of us and what's realistic about outcomes, what we can do for victims, uh, what what our budget allows us to do, what do we want to reallocate? Do we want to give 10% of the cooperative program or 30% or 50% to victims for specific time? Uh, What is it victims have in mind and what do we think we can all agree to give? Uh, Those are the kinds of questions we should be asking. That is a conservative approach to justice where we talk not just about making up for the past and caring for the victim, but also making a decision that doesn't bankrupt everybody else, that doesn't hurt all of our other important institutional loyalties, uh, our, our loyalty to family and our duties to missionaries and our duties to church planners. If we want to go out of business, then let's have that vote, but let's not back ourselves into going out of business by accident uh, just because uh, we, we responded to kind of some emotional slogans that we heard from friends and uh, people who really need some help. But we we will be held responsible for the words we use in response.
0: John, that was great. Let me as the moderator, I'll pause you on that one and I'll pick up on something you said and turn it over to Josh. You said we don't need new leaders, but I, I think there are some legitimate questions that exist right now about how many of our current leaders have responded to the moment. And let me turn that over to Josh there and have him speak to. What the language is he's seeing come out of many of our executive committee members, even some uh, pa- notable pastors who are involved in these issues, and let Josh speak to the leadership, the constitutional courage of the SBC leaders, and what maybe we need to see differently, or if we need different people. Go ahead, Josh. Thanks, William. So, I would
1: to to be a transparent leader, you actually need to have a lot of courage and backbone. I mean, it's, it's easy for almost anybody to purport to be a leader when you can make all of your decisions in the dark and then come out and give an explanation in public that may or may not have any relation to the rationale that you use to make the decision behind the closed doors. And so, you know, I I would say that, um, look, if we had transparency and accountability meaningfully on our entities, um, you know, I do, th- I do think it would result in some leadership turnover. Um, I, I, I would, I would say too, that, um, you know, th- that I, I think the record, I mean, perhaps even back to the John talked about two generations of leadership failure. And I think, I think I can buy that thesis, but, but, um, you know, we have, I think, despised uh, a lot of, a lot of godly wisdom from um Lawyers and business professionals and those who've cut their teeth in in other professions who who know about these issues deeply and have a lot of wisdom to offer to the convention. Um, And and I would just say that, you know, the um, I I think there's been perhaps a Pollyanna ish hope uh, that we can indeed keep everybody happy within the convention, that we can both, you know, we, we can both help the convention to survive and no abuse victim will ever be angry at the convention it may not be possible. It's, it's, it's impossible to keep, to actually have those conditions be true. Um, So, you know, I, I do think though that um, I I think some leadership change is probably going to be essential um, just given, given the, uh, the track record. Um, If you look over to, you know, sort of other domains or perhaps even, you know, inspirational uh, smaller church pastors in their local churches, who are who are wrongly accused of of wrongdoing? Um, you know they they have a tone of moral indignation, and and we need we do need leaders who are capable of hitting that tone, capable of both defending the convention from attack, uh, unjust attack, while also you know to some degree, uh, show showing compassion uh, to those who have been wronged
2: in very terrible ways.
0: Well, thank you, William.
2: Sorry. Did, did you hear me say that we did not need new leaders
0: <laughs> I did I did hear you say that
2: <laughs> oh if, if, if you heard me say that I I was misquoted uh yeah no I mean I, I, I think we do have leaders that are stuck in that uh, obtained power by making promises they didn't know how to keep or didn't intend to keep uh, or now can't keep or don't want to keep and and so the thing that has to change is leaders have to wake up. Uh, and realize there is not a world in which everybody's happy. Like Josh just said, th- there are going to be some uncomfortable trade-offs, not because we don't feel bad for the claims that are made, but because we are balancing more than what, you know, how, how can we make that person happy? We've got lots of, of things we value in the Southern Baptist convention, uh, And as much as we we want to do as the best we can uh, by people and we'll live up to our legal responsibility where we need to. But 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 we can't you know, there is only so much money that life life is about constraint. Um, And so we are constrained in the in handing out resources and balancing our, our duties to everybody.
0: Thanks, John and Josh. You know, speaking of uh, leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention, we do have uh, Tom Askell on the space with us, and I've invited him to go ahead and speak. And so, Tom, if you would like to address the, um, the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention as it stands and the responses to this amicus brief, uh, if you had a chance to see President Barber's response or the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's response from Brent Leatherwood or anything else you would like to say in general, Uh, please go ahead. The floor is yours.
3: Yes. Well, uh, first of all, William, let me just tell you, thank you for hosting this. Thank you to John and to uh, Josh as well. This has been incredibly informative. Every Southern Baptist pastor, uh, I'd go beyond that. Every Southern Baptist needs to listen to this and and heed this. And uh, it does come down to leadership. And there's a lot of facts. There's a lot of legalities that need to be taken into consideration, certainly a lot of morality and just biblical wisdom that has been neglected. But overall, I see this, as I've addressed this multiple times in the last few years, as a failure of leadership. It's tragic to me that we have people in places of leadership who have failed in their responsibilities uh, to be the kind of leader that we need right now in the Southern Baptist Convention, we need men of both courage and conviction. And I think we've got some guys with some conviction, but they lack courage. And we got other guys that have courage, but they just wind up being bullies because they don't have any biblical conviction. And we are in desperate need of new leadership. And so I agree with that last part, especially. Uh, both John, you clarified what you meant, and Josh, you're statements as well there's so many failures at so many points that just biblical wisdom would keep us from making had it been heeded. i mean i'm thinking about what proverbs 18 says you know that the one who states his case first comes or seems right till another comes and examines him or how foolish it is to give an answer before he hears it a person who does something before he weighs all the evidence it's his folly and shame, Proverb says. Well, you sign off on this amicus brief without reading it or without knowing what it says. What is that? That's a failure of wisdom, just practical biblical wisdom. And then I grieve over what's going on, not just the SBC, but what this means for some of those real victims out there that we could have cared for. Well, I'm not sure we'll be able to care for them. Uh, as we could have prior to what seems to be uh, what did the EC accountant say last year? This is unsustainable. Well, if we stay on this road, we're going bankrupt. If we stay on this road, as John pointed out very carefully, uh, we're not going to be uh, an entity of churches. We won't be an association of churches any longer. If you tell my church in Cape Coral, Florida, that what happens to to uh, someone in a church in Kansas City, Missouri, is my responsibility and that we're going to have to spend the next 10 years paying for that. Uh, We're not going to stay in that kind of association. And I dare say that there's not many of our Southern Baptist churches will do that. But can you imagine where we might be today had we three years ago, five years ago, had the biblical wisdom to say, you know what? God's ordained the state. He's ordained the church. When there are crimes committed, call the state immediately. Teach your people, teach the churches, teach our SBC leaders and institutions. When a crime's committed, call the state, call the police. That's what God's ordained. When sin's committed, call the church. Our churches need to own the responsibility to handle sin and unrighteousness within our congregations. It doesn't matter if it's an employee of an institution that employee of the Southern Baptist Institution is also a member of the Southern Baptist Church, and he's accountable to that church under Christ and ought to be held accountable by that church for the sake of Christ and anybody that he might have sinned against. But can you imagine if five years ago, three years ago, the SBC had said, you know what, we need to do, we need to start, we need to establish a, a council of uh, the the most godly, theologically equipped men that we have in the SBC, pastors that we have, and maybe other uh, lay leaders as well, to hear concerns that have been brought by those who say they are victims of abuse through SBC uh, operations or SBC churches, and let that council then evaluate things biblically, and they can't, do anything officially, but they can certainly make statements and judgments and they can make recommendations to churches and if necessary give testimony of the things that they've concerned that, that they've considered and, and heard from these victims. There could well be uh, opportunity for some recompense financially to be paid to people who have been horribly treated and um, not been dealt with as they should have been. And That could have happened. But now what have we spent, $10, $15 million? And I I think that's probably scratching the surface. We're going to be tens of millions of dollars into this probably before uh, we can come up for air. And that's money that's not going to any victim. That's money that is going to lawyers, money that is going to various processes that ultimately will not provide any kind of compensation to a victim who may well deserve such compensation. So I'm grieved over this. I'm grateful for this conversation. I think what's happened on this amicus brief has just uh, further shined the light on failed leadership at the SBC. It is time for new leaders who have backbone, who have conviction and who are willing to turn on the lights and show Southern Baptist churches what is really taking place. Thank you, Tom. And we
0: appreciate you
3: uh, joining us.
0: And if there's anything else you want to say, uh, you, you can mute yourself now, but you can feel free to unmute yourself and chime in. Uh, but I'm going to go to Josh next again. So we do have a statement. We have a statement from our president, Bart Barber, about the how he ended up signing on to this. And he raises a lot of questions about whether or not the statute of limitations is good. Is it is it right? Um, and he sort of uh, uh, kind of iterates through a post that was posted on his personal blog. uh, And it wasn't, I guess an official statement from him uh, on an SBC platform. So that's interesting, but Josh, I know you've had a chance to look at the statement. I just would like to get your feedback and uh, assessment of it, both uh, critically and anything positive in there that you would want to highlight. Thank you. I was, uh, I was actually stunned by the the statement. I mean, it's not,
1: it's barely even a statement. It's a blog post and it has this sort of like chatty tone as if it were written for a journal or something. And he doesn't, uh, he base Bart basically says, um, I was really busy when I was asked to sign off on the amicus brief. Um, and, uh, I read it really quickly. It seemed reasonable and I signed off. Um, I'm not really sure how I think about it. He says, um, he says he's not sure how he feels about statutes of limitations and he doesn't really, you know, just narrow that at all. So it's, you know, you're sort of left wondering, you know, is he in doubt about the, you know, statutes of limitations at all. Um, and so it's, it's a very strange, um, like, and, and he does a couple things in there as well that sort of indicate uh, perhaps, um, you know, he was listening to other counselors or other folks within the executive committee who had, who had, um, wanted to to sign on to that brief so it's you know it's a little bit of um, creating diffuse responsibility certainly not wanting to uh, he, he's not wanting to either reject the brief or on the other hand forthrightly define uh, defend it and so it just it it really <laughs> it left it made nobody happy I mean everybody's mad right the the, um, the uh, abuse, Advocates are are uh, pretty upset about it, and, and you know, and those of us who per, who are you know okay with what you know perhaps okay with what the SBC did on the Samakis brief are befuddled by it too. It's just it's fundamentally unserious. I mean, the the SBC has an annual budget of uh, well at least two hundred million dollars. If you take all the certain other programs, depending on how you count it, up to five hundred million dollars in terms of overall operations. With, it, between the SBC and all of its entities. This is a scale. This is like a... It, it it almost borders on like the annual budget of a Fortune 500 company or something like that. It's a massive institution. And the guy who's leading it writes the equivalent of like a journal entry for a statement explaining like a massive issue of public import. Uh, I think disappointing, missed opportunity. And I think it just underscores again, like we we need... Um, We need more serious leadership right now.
0: Thank you, Josh. And uh, I I do also want to get the panelists' interaction with a line coming out of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission statement by their president, Brent Leatherwood. He says that – he says, of course, we are all autonomous, and so we are free to go about this our own way. But again, that's not the expectation I sense from our messengers. They want us to not merely cooperate, but to be interdependent, and that's in italics in his statement, upon one another. That is to see one another as part of the solution for ultimately stamping out abuse. And I'll just add one brief point of editorial on that. And that is, I am concerned by the way that the language is often used uh, by some of our leaders and other people. They speak about the Southern Baptist Convention to quote unquote stamp out or eliminate abuse as if that were an achievable goal. And we live in a sinful fallen world and there's no church that's perfect. And if you find that church and join it, well, it's no longer perfect because you are a part of it. Now, of course, that's not to downplay the serious nature of abuse and the vast majority of sinners are not committing, you know, sexual abuse and, you know, abusing their authority, particularly if you're a minister. Um, but that said, there's, there's no world on this side of, you know, Christ's return in which all sins and all crimes are, are eliminated, and yet that's the morally uh, fraught language that we often see in some of these. So I just wanted to mention that briefly. But Josh, John, or Tom, uh, what do you take about, how do you take that phrase where he says they want us to not merely cooperate, but to be interdependent upon one another?
3: Yeah, well, I'll take a stab at that, Um, William, interdependent on one another. We've got to define what the Southern Baptist Convention is. The Southern Baptist Convention is an association, a voluntary association of churches. And the entities belong to the churches. The entities are accountable to the churches through the boards of trustees. And so I'm not sure what he's getting at by talking about being interdependent on this. Should we all be committed? to protecting uh, those who are vulnerable in our society? Absolutely. Should we all be committed to preaching the gospel? Absolutely. Preaching God's law? Absolutely, we should. But each of our entities has specific assignments from the convention. Now our entities need to be held accountable to the convention and that hasn't been done very well in recent years because our trustee system is broken. And we have trustees as has been evidenced multiple times over the last few years with the executive committee who find out about things that staff has done uh, after it becomes public. And the trustees are are, are accountable to the churches to hold those entities accountable. And again, I I think if we could just go back to just a basic, simple understanding of what does the Word of God teach us? What do our Baptist principles and polity instruct us on how we are to conduct ourselves within our congregations and in relationship from congregation to congregation and in any cooperative effort that we have through the SBC, that would be with several of our entities, all of our entities and home missions, foreign missions, and all of our seminaries and ERLC and beyond. What does it mean to cooperate in these endeavors? Well, all of those entities are accountable to the SBC and we We ought to hold them accountable and we have a structure for doing so, but we will not do so effectively until the trustee system is uh, reorganized, redesigned with better training so that trustees know what it is they're supposed to do and know how to do it. Thank
0: you, Tom. Appreciate that. Uh, At this point, we've had a very, very productive conversation so far, and I am uh, happy to open it up to some questions. I saw a question left in the comment even from uh, Keith Meyer, and I wanna make sure to address that not to make anybody feel like they're being intentionally left out or singled out. And so Keith asks, uh, particularly to John Whitehead, can you comment on the lack of trustee involvement In making these decisions. So let's start with that, John. And then if other people want to queue up and ask questions, we'll be happy to take them. However, uh, I just want to remind or instruct all of the questioners that we would ask you, please be civil and you please, you know, have a a question, not a not a paraphrase or a paragraph of a comment um, with you just stating your opinion. But please ask questions and uh, ones that our panelists can address. But, John, why don't you take that first one, first one from Keith, which says, can you comment on the lack of these trustee involvement in making these decisions?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think probably some of my other comments hopefully answered Keith's question in that I think the only way out is radical transparency, uh, and that includes to our our trustees. Uh, I, I have been... On the record, repeatedly, I I am still a trustee at the Ethics and Disability Commission, Uh, so I I try not to address uh, their comments directly, but in my time as a trustee, I have repeatedly argued that we should make decisions with the full board. The reason we have large boards in the SBC is so that everybody is represented, so that things can't be kept quiet. Uh, And the trustee system, as it has developed, unfortunately, through the end of the conservative resurgence era uh, and up up to the present, as far as I can tell, every SBC entity is really run by, mostly by its executive committee. There are very few uh, decisions that are brought to full boards that have major impact. So the ERLC recently adopted new bylaws. I can tell you I moved for amendments to the recommendations that would have required the full board to take more actions, to receive more input, uh, for example, to approve the CEO's salary every year. And I was outvoted by the majority of the board who said, we'd like to know the salary, but we think our executive committee should mostly be in charge of setting and proposing that and, and we'll vote on the general budget. And we'll know the salary. They said that's unusual for the SBC, for the full board to know the CEO's salary. So we made that advance, but they said uh, we do not want to vote on the CEO's salary every year. And so as a result, I've seen other critics say, well, the boards are too big. They need to be four or five or six people. I don't think that's the case. If we want to build trust across the board, broad spectrum trust, we need to include the full board in making these decisions, uh, and and we need to know that the decisions are not be made, made by one person. And I think that's why it is disturbing that President Barber, who is an expert in Baptist polity, uh, there's like this confusion about the brief. Well, it came to me, and I thought, well, maybe I had the the power to approve it, um, and that's nowhere in the constitution or the bylaws. And, and so there's this confusion about, well, who's making these decisions? And it seems to me, given where we are, even, even if it weren't Baptist, I think it's Baptist to have more people included. But even if it weren't Baptist, in order to build trust, we're going to have to pry open the doors on these decisions and get more than one person making them, or at least more than one person reviewing them. So on a matter like an amicus brief, uh, you know, the RLC files lots of briefs, and generally they're not controversial amongst Baptist people, and so most of the board is not going to read every brief. But obviously this issue in litigation, I mean, it will be interesting, one person it to get the convention in, Will would they be able to do anything about it if they wanted to do something without a full board vote? Does that have to go to the full uh, executive committee now if uh, the president thinks he doesn't have authority? But, uh, Apart from this specific example, generally, I think the system has now narrowed down to generally four or five trustees on every board as an executive committee with most of the power, and the other trustees um, either don't want to, there's been no organized effort to, to get them more involved. And I think that's a problem when people can go serve on trustee boards and think mostly I'm here. Uh, to to sp- speak when spoken to, uh, I hope our trustees are active and engaged uh, and making major decisions, not leaving those up to a smaller group of the trustees.
1: Um, I, I gotta I gotta chime in on that really quickly, John. I I uh, I know we've uh, we've probably had some back and forth about this before, but I'm on team uh, reduce the size of the boards. Um, I, I I tend to think that. Um, a board, really, once it gets over about 12 or 13 people, it almost necessarily cannot be a functional board. And it makes uh, something like an executive committee necessary. Um, now, now I totally agree that we need more accountability. I, my suggestion for broadening the accountability would actually be, I mean, reduce the size of the board so you get real board governance and combine that with um, tighter financial controls and disclosure requirements so we need to you know we need we need to revisit the business plan of the SBC um significantly improve the controls in there and then you know really um I mean we need to these entities should be disclosing 990 level financial information um so that all Southern Baptists can know what the executive salaries are of of entity leaders I mean that's just it's Public companies do it. Um, Every charity that's not a church or church related organization has to do it. Uh, There's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake here. And, uh, you know, and we we need to we need to get this passed. And, uh, you know, a a mutual friend, uh, Rep Burns, pastor from South Carolina, I know, is uh, made a motion in New Orleans uh, for financial accountability. And I believe he's he's having ongoing conversations with the executive committee over that. I'm sure a lot of the entities aren't going to like it, um, but it's it's 100% the right thing to do. Um, and I, I see that, that combination of moves as, as the solution.
2: Yeah, I, I, and I, I appreciate uh, that response because I, I know lots of folks uh, will agree about board size. Oh, and, and on 990, of course, I'm totally on board with that. Uh, I I think it it would behoove our entities to do that. I guess you are right that in corporate law theory, a large board makes things slower for the efficient operation of a corporation. And I don't think that's the reason Baptist boards exist. If we wanted efficient organizations... Uh, frankly they would not be Southern Baptist. I tell people all the time if you didn't have these beliefs you wouldn't be here no nobody in their right mind would put uh, questions to 15,000 messengers that drive in in the afternoon to make a decision if you didn't have very specific beliefs about how the Holy Spirit works and and democracy uh, but also, the goal is not to efficiently operate these corporations as fast as they can be run, but to build up trust as fast as we can across the board that giving the money uh, will buy people a seat and and be spent the way they want it to be spent and not any differently. So if the goal is to build trust in a broad group of Baptists, I think the big board does that because the goal is not to spend money as fast as we can, but I agree with you If we just want to be efficient, then uh, I understand those arguments for a smaller board.
0: Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh, uh, for taking that question. And then we have we have a couple people lined up here. We'll go to Megan Basham first, who has reported on issues surrounding the Southern Baptist Convention and some of the abuse allegations and the cases that have been live in recent years. So, Megan, go ahead.
4: Well, you know, I was just thinking as I was listening to all of this that a significant part of the issue, I think, is a problem of public
0: perception. I see that Megan is unmuted, but I cannot hear. Can anyone else hear
1: her? I can hear her, I can hear her.
0: Yeah, I can hear. Her. Okay, well, I can't. So, just uh, Josh, when she, when she's done, uh, Chris Bolt is next. <laughs>
4: Sorry about that. I don't. <laughs> I don't know why it's just you, William. <laughs> um, well, my point was simply that I, I think that there is a a public perception issue. And that goes very much for messengers who are not experts in this kind of thing. Um, Even a lot of pastors do not have the time to dig down and understand what's happening with this issue in the SBC at a granular level. And so what you've seen is sort of a media narrative that has been created here. And that's been true from the very get-go, I think. Um, You know, I mean, we could sort of go back and rehash how this issue first came um, to public awareness, and that was through, I would argue, very orchestrated leaked letters from Russell Moore, who was then head of the ERLC, making sort of um, very emotive, um, hyperbolic accusations about abuse that were then run in full, uncritically, by the Religion News Service, which is then, you know, reprinted in AP, reprinted. Printed in the Washington Post. So going into the convention, um, I want to say it was like 2018 or 2019 where this issue really became live. um, You had a lot of people who didn't really understand what the claims were. They just knew they were seeing terrible headlines about the Southern Baptist Convention going into the convention. So they're then asked to vote on something that is essentially saying, Do you want us to handle abuse? And without really understanding how this topic became um such a dominant story in the media cycle they just vote yes because you sort of want the eye of media sauron to turn away from you and so i think you saw a lot of people assuming facts that were wrong (laughs) frankly um and some of those were things like people are under the perception and we've just seen this in the last few days that what happened with the executive committee was that um abuse victims or um People who had suffered and not yet come forward were going to the executive committee and saying, we want to disclose abuse to have you do something about it. And that's not what was happening. What was happening were people who had been abused, in some cases, um, 50 years before, 40 years, 30 years. And those situations had already either been dealt with legally or they could not be dealt with legally, but they attempted to file charges Um, They had been dealt with, in some cases, by local churches, perhaps not dealt with well. But these were not secrets. These were not unknown cases. These were, at this point, um, I think you could say church to activists who were coming to the executive committee saying, we would like you to build in these certain reforms. If you think of someone like Krista Brown or Debbie Vasquez, what they were doing was not coming to the executive committee disclosing that they were abused. They were saying, we would like you to build a database. Now, what you can argue, should the executive committee have approved that database? They have legal reasons, some of which have been covered here that they didn't want to do that. But the public perception is that the executive committee covered up what happened. And the reason we have that public perception is because you saw headlines all over the place that we're still seeing people posting that are incorrect. They're claiming that They covered up abuse at the executive committee level, or we even just saw Rick Warren say that, I mean, truly out of the blue, that Southern Baptist Theological Seminary covered up abuse, um, when there's really been no serious allegations of that at all. I'm I'm not even sure where he got that, other than the fact that he sort of tangled with Al Mohler on the subject of women pastors. Um, So that's one thing, is that it feels like there has been a real reticence to correct the record. And I think that is because nobody wants to be called an abuse apologist. And I can understand that impulse. But the problem is um, when you let this sort of false narrative run rampant because you're afraid of confronting it, then people are making really important decisions based on bad information. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot of. Um, And I could give a lot more examples of that. I mean, right after that guidepost report came out, it was shocking to me to see headlines using um, words like apocalypse when just looking at the hard numbers of what was in that report simply did not justify terminology like that, which is not to discount that any individual cases of abuse are horrific. They are. They're abhorrent. They should be dealt with biblically. And certainly we could discuss whether um, these individual churches did the right thing and what the SBC should do going forward. But this idea that it was an apocalypse or a diseased orchard simply wasn't um, merited as far as I could see by the numbers. And very few people were willing to question that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, like I said, I think there's a fear. And then on the other side of that, I do think um, anybody, <laughs> and I'm not recommending it because it is you know, an HBO show, but anybody who watched the show Succession, there was sort of a famous plot point where one of the sons who wanted to seize control used the issue of abuse to do it. And I think we have seen some people who saw an opportunity to make this particular issue something that they could build their platform on. And they also would have very little reason to be specific, to be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about um, what the SBC's abuse problem is. The The abuse problem at the national level is not a cover-up problem. It is truly, I think it should be, a good faith debate of how responsible are we as a national entity to address what is happening in individual local churches. So, I, you know, for me, what I would like to see is some people who um, are a little more courageous in pushing back against what is simply an incorrect narrative that I would argue has been very deliberately forwarded um, by major media outlets, even down to, you know, the Houston Chronicle, I think a lot of people were under the impression that those cases that they found over the course of some 21 years, that those were all new cases and those were hidden things that they found. It actually wasn't. Most of those were cases where charges had already been filed. It wasn't like this was like the Catholic Church where the SBC national entity was moving people around and protecting people. I think you could argue that certainly that was happening in some individual churches, but there was no allegation that that was happening at a national level with national leadership. So um, that's just something that I would like to know. Is there any effort being made by anyone really to say, look, without discounting victims, without discounting the seriousness of abuse, we have to be a little more um, courageous in talking about what's really happening here
1: um i i think that that's a that's a great thank you for those comments um you know i think that you know some folks on this call john whitehead has has been speaking about this for several years um tom has has spoken about it as well in 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 the last several years um the other the other um uh, brother who comes to mind is is rod martin has been very vocal and i think very clear about um accurately diagnosing uh what's going on uh, ever since the beginning of the of the abuse crisis um now you know i mean it, it's even i mean I, I think thinking through some of the deceptive reporting on this you know megan you've probably seen this claim it's in almost every story on the SBC, right, that the executive committee was maintaining a secret database of abusers and not doing anything with it. And the actual truth under that is that one staff member on EC staff had a Google alert system set up that would notify them whenever a Baptist pastor um, was, uh, was accused or convicted of abuse. And they, they had set that alert system up. They weren't uh, doing anything with that information. But of course, in the majority of the cases that were to which they were being alerted, the justice system did what the justice system is supposed to do. So that's that's the that's the basis of this secret database of, of abuse, um, you know, that, that we often hear about. And, and really, I mean, much of the reporting has has sort of similarly has been at a similar level of quality. Um, the other thing is like m- a lot of the major religion reporters uh, and Robert Down and don't seem to have any understanding of like what the Southern Baptist Convention is and how Baptist polity works. Like these are people, you know, in some cases, folks who commented on the, um, for instance, the Catholic abuse scandal. They just have such a different understanding of how churches work. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of like, let's just get it on the table. It, there could be. Southern Baptist churches all over the country where the ministers are embezzling money and engaged in all sorts of other um, bad behavior that, you know, the SBC has just never said, you know, we're not we're not investigating that. We're not taking responsibility for it. We're a voluntary association. That means you can raise your hand, pay us some money and you get to be a member. But we're not you know, we're a membership association. We're not a top down denomination. And, uh, you know, and that that fact has been, I just think, often um, just completely disregarded and intentionally obscured by the by the national reporting on the issue. Um, But thank you, Megan. And and you're welcome to stay on the panel as we uh, continue to work through our questions here. But I'm going to shift over to Chris, Chris Bolt. Uh, Chris, go right ahead, please.
5: Thanks, Josh, for taking my question and William, too. And hopefully he can hear me, but I don't know.
0: I can hear you, Chris.
5: Excellent. Well, I'm going to uh, split this into two. Um, It's fascinating to me that we've gone from shaming those who were unwilling or questioned the idea of waiving attorney-client privilege. We've gone from that to now the SBC itself signing on to this other case uh, in a self-defense um, effort. Uh, and that's in a matter of two years or so, right? So I guess my, my two questions are this. One is for Josh and then the other one for John. Um, the first one for Josh is what could this have looked like were it not for activists trying to use the Uh, abuse scandals, legitimate abuse cases, um, and all of those things surrounding those. Uh, What would would this have looked like if activists had not used that to essentially clear off the executive committee, the old executive committee? Because you had men on that board uh, who were members of other boards who were lawyers, who were involved in business. Uh, They could not Waive attorney client privilege without losing their positions on those positions outside of uh, the SBC. Uh, what would it have looked like in terms of insurance, in terms of payouts to uh, victims uh, and whatnot? Because I do, I do understand if you're a victim and it somehow overlaps with the SBC, I understand the frustration of not being able to get things done, of not being able to have justice, of not being able to have vindication. Uh, and whatnot. Uh, How could it have looked different and better even if people had not used this politically within the SBC to clear the EC? And then the question for John would be, uh, could you comment perhaps on what it would have looked like had the ERLC taken leadership in this case, rather than putting everything at the center of the SBC with the EC? Uh, And I know that you've written on this some. And then the question for both of you with that is, what can we do now uh, in
1: terms of that. thanks, Chris. I, I think if this were handled well, the leaders at the time that the abuse scandal started to bubble up would have done a couple things. First of all, they would I mean, they would have been uh, of course, like clear from the start, God hates abuse, and we are fully on board with um, with uh, desiring justice for those who've been harmed uh, by by sexual assault. Rape and that sort of thing, um, and you know, and and we're going to do a couple of things. You know, one, we're well, first, we're going to consider whether we've kind of adequately resourced uh, churches in our convention to deal with these issues. Um, now, now you've got a your your question. Um, I I think had a couple parts to it. You you do in in weighing the responses, you do need to distinguish between um, the case of abuse that's in a local church. Versus a case of abuse where um, the the perpetrator is actually employed by an s by the SBC or an SBC entity. In the former case, the SBC would have it, it needed leaders who could have stood up and said, um, "We support your quest for justice, but we are not complicit in this, and it's not just for you to drag us into it. We've not been part of the cover up. We are not morally culpable for what happened to you. We're sorry for what happened to you. We hate it." Um, but it's not just for you to to uh, to come after us in court over it. Um, that, that, I mean, that's tough to say. It was very tough to say in the moment, but people needed to say it. And they, nobody did, basically. Um, now, you know, and then with respect to, um, you know, claims that directly involved, um, you know, employee uh, employees of SBC or SBC entities, of which there's only a handful, as far as I'm aware And even those, you know, some of those have uh, disputes of fact around what happened. And, you know, um, you know, those cases, uh, you know, I believe that the uh, Lyle case just settled recently. Um, You know, I'm not sure those those would have been played much differently. I mean, they should have, you know, the SBC should have said that we're going to go through the legal process and, you know, we're going to, um, you know, evaluate these claims and go through the legal process and, and, you know, and and work with the outcome. I don't think there's in when it comes to civil litigation. I don't think there's a moral duty on Christian organizations to give up uh, the process of law protections that all of us in a society have um, that help to ensure a just outcome. And so, you know, I I don't, I you know, I I think the SBC, uh, you know, is is right to defend itself in those sorts of circumstances, uh, often because the leaders themselves. I mean, they, they may not know what the facts really are, and, and everybody needs a rigorous legal process in order to even get to an accurate understanding of what may have occurred.
2: So I guess I'll, I'll pick up there, Chris, I, kind of what I understand you to be kind of angling at uh, is uh, a letter I wrote to the SBC Executive Committee. Uh, and and probably this needs its own space sometime. Uh, and I told William, someday we should, we should have the discussion about the facts on the ground in the lead-up to Russell Moore's leaked letters, plural, and the timing of those letters and, and what they resulted in at the SBC. Uh, and, and I guess to Megan's earlier point, yeah, those letters were, were I think, written it, it, precisely to make people think the wrong thing. I, I vividly remember uh, the brother coming to the microphone during the executive committee report in 2021 and asking Ronnie Floyd, Brother Ronnie, did something happen to kids that you didn't report to police? And so the letters that were written and leaked were designed to make... Messengers that did not know what was going on fear that our executive committee was, in fact, know, knew about children and and did not report it to the police. And I ask you to then go look at the guidepost report and and ask yourself, does what this report says look like what those letters reported? And I think the answer is no. Now, the, there's the allegation against Johnny Hunt, uh, and and in my view, that's that was uh, uh, obviously disqualifying, uh, and, and that's probably the kind of thing Baptists would like to know. But ask yourself, besides Johnny Hunt, who was not the focus of the investigation, that was 10 years before, ask yourself, did the letters that prompted the investigation, did that look like reality? once we waived privilege and got the facts and, and perhaps fatally wounded the executive committee of the SBC and sent it on its way to bankruptcy. Did those two things look the same? I don't think they did. And unfortunately, uh, I, I noticed that some leaders have found it easier to hope the jury understands than to try to correct the record with the public. Uh, you know, it, it, we go on Anderson Cooper and apologize for everything and people people say, "Well, I watched the interview. I thought you apologized for the cover up, but then under oath they say, uh, well, there wasn't much of a cover up. Uh, that that was that was deceptively edited.' And uh, Anderson Cooper didn't ask me those words, and I didn't I didn't respond to those words. So, uh, like I said, it, it's kind of a it, probably a whole separate hour and a half discussion. But but in that sense, I agree with an advocate like Krista Brown who says wait a minute, how much of this is about internal Baptist politics and a generational conflict versus a commitment to change? Or do these guys really believe the promises they're making? Are they going to follow through with them? And, and based on what I've seen, I, I really think some of it was by people who did not intend to follow through or didn't care if they followed through. They didn't ever expect to be in this position. And they've made promises uh, and commitments they just can't keep. And we're all going to pay the price for that as we move forward. Thank you, John. Uh, We've
0: been going at this for two
2: hours now, and so I want
0: to be respectful of people's times. But I am tracking two questions that have been submitted online, and I want to make sure that we cover those. So the first one is from uh, Brother Will McCraney, who asks, Can somebody speak to SBC entity boards making claims and legal filings that impact the other entities? And other Baptist bodies, such as state conventions or local churches legally, and it potentially impact the entire SBC, what should be done to address past bad filings by entities and prevent this going forward? So that could be for Josh or John or really Josh or John, one of you want to take that.
2: Josh, do you have thoughts on that one?
1: Well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it, I I certainly agree that there's been uh, some well documented cases of entities making these sorts of claims. I mean, frankly, even the ERLC statement today, which is not in a court filing, but you know, they're they're sort of asserting, um, they're asserting that cooperation is not enough; that the entities of the convention must be interdependent, which is sort of getting at a similar issue um, to what you know the North American Mission Board has claimed in some of its litigation. Where they um, they assert uh, they assert uh, co- a level of cooperation that that previously would not be asserted in any kind of filing. And you know, I don't I don't know what the fix is. I mean, p- perhaps um, perhaps there's some amendments you could make again to the business and financial plan uh, that would um, require, entities to uh, to get sign-off from other entities if they make claims about the nature of the relationship between the entities. Um, I, that might actually be a, a prudent fix. Um, and it, it also goes back, to, you know, John, to something you highlighted at the start, which is the fact that all these various Southern Baptist entities all have the same lawyers. Um, and I, I know they need to cooperate, but it's actually not obvious to me that their interests are always aligned. I mean, in some ways, you know, sometimes the entities are going to be competitive with each other they're going to have adverse interests in a way that you know it actually would surprise me in some cases to see them having the same the same counsel um they're they're you know i i might you know in some in some instances i would i would really love to see the conflicts analysis that the lawyers are, are working through to get comfortable um representing all those various entities without sort of ethical walls and not, not disclosing information. Um, but I, I do think, you know, having, having distinct boards, um, and then those boards having, uh, you know, their own council and having some sort of clarified swim lanes would, would significantly, um, improve these distortions. Um, and, and, you know, one other thing that happens in the SBC a lot, which is just sort of a, a garden variety conflict of interest is that, um, Someone who's employed by one entity can serve on the board of another entity. And, and, um, you know, this may not sound like a huge issue, but what this does is it it creates the opportunity for uh, quid pro quo style behaviors uh, between the entities. And and so I I would favor some sort of rule to the board composition, uh, rules of the Constitution that essentially says if you're employed by an SBC entity, you cannot serve on the board Of another entity
0: thanks josh and we'll move on to the next question then this is coming in from david rhodes who is the pastor is a pastor at broadview church and david asks uh these are his words if the unwise statements in the courts or online by barber or other sbc leaders create legal connections between the entities and the sbc itself at what point could a court also connect SBC churches to the SBC? And this really gets at the heart of everything that we've been considering. So at what point could a court connect SBC churches to the SBC more broadly?
2: So uh, I, I've, I've been asked that question before and, and I've given several people kind of the same response. Uh, I think the biggest risk for a Southern Baptist church right now Uh, is not that it gets dragged into litigation. Uh, Although that, it's conceivable, never say never. Uh, I I think the biggest risk to a local Baptist church is that it sends money somewhere and it doesn't go where it intends it to go. It gets sucked up by bankruptcy courts or uh, court judgments uh, or Nashville changes, the CP allocation. Something happens and it doesn't go where it's supposed to go. I think that's the biggest risk for most local churches. Now, I guess in the Boy Scouts case, individual churches kind of had to get involved in bankruptcy litigation for their scout troops uh, where they were hosted. So there are ways a local church uh, could have to respond somewhere might have claims brought against it. But I think those are pretty low. I think the biggest risk for a local church right now is that the money doesn't go where it expects to go. Like what? Now, some churches. If if your church is in the leadership clique of of the SBC, if uh, if NAM is buying you a house, uh, or your pre- your uh, preacher's on the executive committee, uh, and somebody can say, "Well, you are part of the leadership club," uh, or if if uh, Kevin Ezel names your new pastor, sends your search committee a lot of names, uh, things like that will begin to look like interrelationship. Uh, And I can also see, uh, say, a church plant. If if misconduct happens at a church plant, there's probably going to be a tighter connection back to the SBC or uh, to NAM. So there's, there's always room for specific problems. But just the average church that sends in a CP check to its state and the state sends it on down, I think the real concern is somewhere along the way the money goes somewhere you don't want it to go. You send in the check one day, and it doesn't make it to to Lottie Moon, it goes somewhere else. That would be the biggest risk there. Uh, But as between our entities, I I think, you know, right now there's kind of this looming question, does the executive committee have enough finances to keep going, or will it run into problems? Uh, And so I think there's real risk in that situation that, Southern Baptist leaders will get in a room like Standard Oil and try to solve that problem by reallocating money and trying to change the CP allocation to, because people don't want to give to the executive committee, or in fact, it does assume a lot of liabilities that it can't pay. And And I think there is real risk in the next year that people take actions that in effect uh, wreck the separate liability of all the entities and, in fact, turn them into one ball of wax. And in that case, the cooperative program is at risk for redirection, not just your individual contributions to entities. So at a local church level, I think it's pretty low unless you're one of the bigwigs in the convention. There's some risk, always some risk, but not a lot of risk. I think the the bad news now, though, is the contagion may spread from the executive committee to the rest of the convention at the, at the national level. Uh, and if the cooperative program for whatever reason became unworkable, that would really, you know, there would have to be lots of movement and, and rethinking the structure of Baptist life. Uh, that's probably the, the worst case scenario right now. Uh, but in the short term, obviously the question is, how are you going to pay these lawsuits? How are you going to pay for the defense of these lawsuits? Does insurance cover them? And the executive committee sure seems to be running out of money fast. Are they going to make it? Unfortunately, I think some uh, people think, well, good riddance to the executive committee. Why do we ever need them? But the executive committee is kind of the glue. They're the only people that have to think about the whole ball of wax, about doing what's best for everybody. Uh And I think without them, it will be hard for the cooperative program to work. So looking forward, I think those are the the short-term issues. What do we do with the executive committee? Does that spread to the convention? Relatively low risk, it spreads to individual churches, uh, but you can never rule it out. Thank you, John.
0: We have one more question coming in uh, via comments, and let it never be said that we were not equal opportunity question takers here. This is from the anonymous account, uh, the SBC platform. We can all have certain questions as to whether or not they speak for the platform or those in the SBC, but here is their question to you, John. John, what have you seen as a, quote, best practice policy for organizations authorizing legal action, approval by board requirements, at what level, authorizing management to approve Etc. You've touched on some of that already, but if you want to just briefly address that and then I'll have John and Josh uh, and Tom, if you would like to provide closing comments and we'll figure it out. We'll close it out. Sorry. Uh, we lost John there. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I've just tried to bring him back. So Josh, if you have anything to say to that question, go ahead. while John yeah. gets back up.
1: Yeah. So, so most organizations will like, if you've got a, a public company with a board, or a private company that has you know investors typically they'll have approval rights on really important litigation and then there's sort of everyday stuff that they leave up to the executives of the company to just des- to decide in their own judgment um, so so you know in this case um, like like in the case of a corporation if you're doing some kind of bet the company litigation where you know you lose and maybe you go out of business or really materially harms the company um, maybe it's the amount in controversy but but at some level the case gets important enough that you need to get the board to sign off on it and um, you know and and typically the way you'd, you'd have that approval policy is you would have you know you might have a dollar amount for materiality and then you might have some other you know sort of catch-all for um, you know some other case that has material implications for your organization or something like this. There's no perfect way to draft it. There's always going to be weird questions. You're not sure if a, if a case fits that criteria or not. But, um, you know, what I've often seen is that's the way it's written. And usually if you're an executive, you would err on the side of caution in most cases. Um, you know, if you had a policy that said run material litigation uh, past your, your board, uh, you, would, you would go do that uh, before making a filing. Um, now, you know, the one thing is this is a, this is defensive litigation. So of course the SBC had no choice. They were named and they have to defend themselves. And so, you know, I would say it it would be pretty rare to see a corporate policy where the filing of an amicus brief and a defensive action would be subject to board approval. That would be unusual in my experience.
2: Yeah, sorry. I I, uh, left and came back, but what I heard there sounded right. In most cases, I would think a corporation, number one, try not to be the corporation that needs a litigation policy. Uh, but two, once you are, uh, there's some kind of materiality threshold. Like Josh just said, the deal here is this is a PR problem amongst people that we've made promises to more than it is a liability question uh, for the amicus brief. Uh, so I, am not sure, uh, you know, maybe you'd have an amicus committee or, or a legal committee, uh, or a materiality, which it, the whole board has to approve things. All those would be good policies for the SBC specifically. Uh, I, if I were sitting in Nashville, I would probably appoint a committee for the Southern Baptist convention to think about litigation. So it's not the president. Uh, I understand the the executive committee has ad interim authority, uh, but they're often the name of these lawsuits themselves. And so there is kind of this uh, potential conflict, maybe not actual, but at least potential, that the executive committee's interests are different from the SBC, that the SBC would point the finger at the executive committee as a corporation uh, or the or vice versa. Uh, and so rather than have one person make all the decisions who's uh, you know, elected because of their moderator skills, uh, if somebody needs to do something for the convention, maybe the executive committee needs to have an independent committee appointed for the purposes of the Southern Baptist Convention's legal strategy. Now, I think the issue is they're going to hand it over to insurance counsel. If, if, if we have insurance, it looks like we probably do of some kind then we owe it to the insurance company to let them put up a reasonable defense. And so for the most part, we're going to let the insurance company lawyers try whatever theory they want to try. But if for whatever reason they want to try some theory that we would object to or we have to make an independent decision, uh, you would not want that necessarily to be your best Robert's Rules guy. You want that to be a group of people who are independent and can think about the best interests of the convention. That's probably not a victim advocate. That's probably not one of our consultants on ARITF. That's probably somebody with the fiduciary responsibility to protect the interests of the convention and let them make the group decision. And that way, the convention can hold them responsible. We can't vote out Bart Barber if we don't like his decision at this point. Uh, So the accountability mechanism for the convention's actions, you'd like to be at the convention level. Uh, And so that, that probably something that needs to needs to happen sooner rather than later is uh, there needs to be uh, official uh, legal authority to make decisions at the convention level and get that uh, chain of command pretty clear. Thank you, John. You just
0: touched on another word there that is crucial to this entire conversation, which is accountability. We've talked about the need for transparency. We've talked about the need for courage Uh, We certainly need clarity in who we are as a Southern Baptist Convention and what it means to be in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention from an organizational and legal liability standpoint. And we also do need accountability. And I think that's something that many people felt was sorely lacking in some of the statements that were made recently in light of this amicus brief. Well, let's turn over to some closing comments now, and uh, we'll begin with Josh and then Tom, if you have anything you want to add, you can chime in there. And uh, then Megan, too, if you'd like to say anything, or Chris, and then we'll close with John Whitehead.
1: Yeah, I, I think that what we're going to need going forward is leaders who've got a lot of moral clarity, and, and in particular, people who've thought very deeply about uh, principles of justice. I, I tend to think... Uh, the SBC isn't, uh, you know, the story's not over for us. I, I do think that under the right leadership, um, some of the bad decisions that have been made over the past four years can be significantly mitigated. Um, I think the law is, generally speaking, still on our side. Um, but what we need is we need to start developing the the moral language and be able to articulate that the convention defending itself in cases where it's not morally complicit is right and just that's like fundamentally what we need to do. Um, and so, you know, I, that's my, that's my hope and prayer. And, you know, obviously we, you know, many of us on this panel are also trying to work to toward that end. Um, but that's, that's what I think we need to see here.
3: Yeah, I, I would say amen to that. And, uh, to the other points that have been made tonight, I, one of the themes that just keeps running through everything that I've heard tonight is leadership. And we desperately need new, courageous, convictional leadership in the SBC. We need it at every level. Uh, We've got an opportunity in front of us coming up in the 2024 convention because we will be electing a new president and we'll have an opportunity, I hope, to vote through the Mike Law Amendment as well. So I would say to all Southern Baptists, show up at Indianapolis, if you have any concerns, any hope for the future of the SBC, and pray that God will provide for us uh, candidates that we can elect that will be convictional, courageous leaders that are willing to stand up and, and to resist the onslaught that inevitably is going to come when we take our stands convictionally and say, no, we are not going to kowtow to the social justice mobs. We're not going to kowtow to those who would try to intimidate us into fulfilling their agenda that is contrary to the agenda of the word of God. So I plan to be there and I would encourage every Southern Baptist who can at all possible to show up in Indianapolis.
0: Thank you, Tom. Uh, Chris, do you have any closing comments for us?
5: Yeah, I mean, I really shouldn't have any uh, because I'm among brighter lights for sure. So I'm thankful for everybody who's spoken tonight and give us some clarity on this. I will say uh, that it's very disheartening to see uh, leadership who use a particular ploy to take political power, uh, then turn around and do the very same things that they had accused others of doing. Uh, I think that needs to change. I think we need character in leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. It is important. It is worth fighting. It is worth saving. Uh, Lord, have mercy on us. And we hope that that happens. I hope that people will show up in Indianapolis to vote and make the right decisions. Uh, There are some big things before us. A lot of this bottlenecks at the issue of egalitarianism and functional egalitarianism. Our view of men and women and their proper roles uh, in God's created order. And then also uh, the issue of the 990s and transparency. Uh, You know, John was speaking earlier about transparency and the need for that, especially in the Internet age. We need transparency and the financial issues are not totally separate um, from the uh, the abuse issue and handling that rightly, uh, even as pertains to specific entities. And so uh, I'm encouraged by the, the space tonight and the thoughts and the things that have been
0: said. So thank you all. Thank you, Chris. And we'll go to Megan. And then after Megan's done, I'll close us out.
4: Um, you know, I think just to summarize, I would say I, I want to encourage people that um, I, I, I don't want to see people being emotionally manipulated over an issue that is a serious issue that does require our empathy. It requires um, us to show compassion for victims and. Um, and a, a sober-mindedness in approaching what we do next. But at the same time, I, I, I think that we have to stop with this sort of crouching fear of being labeled abuse apologist if, if you say, no, actually, what you're saying here isn't correct. That's not the correct information. That's not what happened. Um, and I think if we can sort of respond to what I see as a very emotive push with just facts, 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 at the same time in love saying, look, I understand that there's real pain here and there's real hurt, but I don't believe that um, the better part of righteousness is allowing false narratives to flourish. Um, So, you know, my word would just be, I really want to encourage people to, one, it is not justifiable or responsible or Christian to make claims that aren't true just because it's sort of floating out there in the ether sphere and you think that that sounds right. Right to be on the side of abuse victims. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and say that, yes, we should all rally to uh, down with the executive committee or, you know, yes, I'm going to retweet everything I see that's negative about the SBC and abuse because it feels right. Because I don't think that that is um, something that you can justify biblically either. So that would probably be my closing word.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Megan. And John, why don't we go over to you and you can you can say your piece and then we'll close this one out.
2: Yeah, I'm sorry, my, uh, my uh, microphone is dropped. My AirPods are dropping, so uh, I hope you can hear me. Uh, Eighty-four of you have made it here. Uh, I guess the the word I want to give you is uh, let's hang on together. Like I said, there are Baptists that really believe this stuff, uh, and and those are the Baptists that need a Southern Baptist Convention. There are people that are not going to get what they want out of the SBC because it can't give them what they want uh and those people will leave in fact I, I think some people that have left have wondered why some people are still behind you know, we told you we told you it wasn't worth its salt we've left why haven't you left with us um and so it, at some level the sbc cannot give everybody what they want and it's going to get smaller uh but we need conservatives to show up be transparent bond together over uh what it is we believe together the Baptist faith and message is the statement of faith. We believe these things are true. We need an organization that upholds the Baptist faith and message. There are lots of parent organizations. We're going to need an SBC for the people that believe it. So I hope uh, conservatives are listening. Go to Indianapolis. Vote for the law amendment. Get to know one another because we've got some work to do uh, as as we kind of revive Baptist polity amongst the people that really do believe in the Baptist faith and message. Uh, we may lose some folks that send us some money uh, just to be part of us and put the name on the plaque. Uh, but there's going to be even, no matter how hard we crash, we may crash. We're going to crash together, and make the best of it afterwards. Uh, and those are the friends we need to start making.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you to everybody who has tuned in to this space tonight. And for those who will be listening on the recording, this has been an incredibly helpful conversation, shedding light on the recent uh, controversy and conversation about an amicus brief that was joined by the SBC and other entities in cases that have uh, implications for the broader conversation about the sexual abuse issues and reform in the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you to our panelists for joining us. And for my closing comments, I will just remark that it is important that Southern Baptists recognize the bounds of their cooperation that are doctrinally rooted We are a cooperation of churches that have joined together because we have shared commitments to the supremacy and the authority of God's word and what it says about how we should structure our churches and who should be a pastor. And so when we see that these bounds of cooperation are being stretched from organizational or legal uh, questions that are facing us, but they're also being stretched by doctrinal issues. And fundamentally, we are churches who join together because we say we believe certain things that the Bible teaches, and we need to stand strong on those issues. If you are a conservative in the Southern Baptist Convention, let me encourage you to stay in and fight, and fight for the goodness of the gospel work that is done by our churches and by our entities, and for the goodness of God's Word, which informs the doctrine upon which we execute our mission. Our mission is not what drives our doctrine. It should be our doctrine that drives our mission and our humble, cheerful submission to God's word in all things, including, and these days, most importantly, in matters of justice, biblical justice, and righteousness. And so thank you again to everybody for joining us tonight. We hope to see you in Indianapolis 24, and please make sure to share the space with your friends and tell others in the Southern Baptist Convention about it. God bless you all and have a good night.